Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 21st session of the MBT Fireside Chat. Obviously, I'm not Donna, so uh, she apologizes for her absence today and has thrown me in somewhat at the deep end. So uh, this should be interesting. Okay, down to business. Lots of questions again today, and the first question is going to be from Torsten. He was new last time, didn't have a question, but now he does. So, Torsten, it's all yours. Yeah, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, this is my question. My question refers to types of entities and their capabilities. Some are described in Robert Munro's Journeys Out of the Body and in your, Tom's, My Big Toe. The following three types of entities are just examples delineating what my questions refer to. Example number one is the category which Robert Munro describes in the chapter Intelligent Animals. Several subtypes of intelligent animals troubled him on some of his journeys. Example number two is a kind of worker. Two of them were sent to uh, Tom uh, during his childhood with the mission to seal up your door to journeys into NPMR. Even though you changed from child consciousness to adult consciousness when you entered NPMR, you experienced them as much stronger and smarter than yourself. Example number three refers to experiences described by Robert Monroe in the chapter Inconclusive as suddenly having felt bathed in and transfixed by a very powerful beam. He was completely powerless with no will of his own, and he felt as if he were in the presence of a very strong force. It had intelligence of a form beyond his comprehension, and it came directly into his head and seemed to be searching every memory in his mind. He was truly frightened because he was powerless to do anything about this intrusion. With this in mind, I would like to ask you the following questions. Firstly, can you identify the difference and explain it to us between a human consciousness and those described above? Okay, let's pause there and I'll just we'll do these one at a time. Um, if that's all right, instead of going through all the four questions. Okay. Um, comparing these kinds of, of uh, consciousness with human is actually not all that hard. And, and there's there's actually one that should have been maybe zero before we got to one, two, and three, before the uh, um, intelligent animals. Mm-hmm. And that's one that I would call uh, just elementals. And that is probably, we'll say, an unintelligent animal. But uh, it's, it's on the borderline uh, between being... Uh, having free will or not. In other words, its decision space is very is very small. So let's say 95% instinct, 95% hardwiring, and 5% decision space. Okay, would be what I would call an elemental. So they are pretty much hardwired. The, you give them the same stimulus, you pretty much get the same response over and over again. But they do have some small capacity to um, function independently of their hard wiring. So I would start with that as maybe uh, example zero. And then next up the line would be the intelligent animals. 
and then uh, the worker, and then the uh, the powerful uh, being that seems to take control. All of these consciousnesses are not fundamentally different than human consciousness. They're all basically of the same type and stuff. Just like here, we have that same, well, we don't have all that range, but we have most of that range right here. If you were to talk to uh, or in, interact with, with something that uh, was kind of on the elemental range, what would that be? It would be uh, maybe an insect or a clam or something that uh, maybe has a little bit of free will decision space, but not much. Basically, it's just a hardwired response. And then you go up into the uh, intelligent animals. Well, we have a lot of intelligent animal, animals around. I guess that's a pretty fitting, uh, um, you know, dogs and cats and horses and all sorts of things, birds and squirrels. Lots of animals are uh, reasonably intelligent where you can interact with them. Um, and if we wanted just into the human consciousness, that first then would be maybe a, a, a human that was severely retarded, almost at the elemental level, very little cognitive uh, decision space. Uh, next would be uh, perhaps a human that just uh, not necessarily severely retarded, but the intelligent animal part would maybe be uh, uh, slow, what we would call a, a person who was just uh, very, very slow. And then up the, the worker, that would be more like the humans that we mostly interact with during the day. Most of humanity are sort of like those workers, competent. They don't, know, they don't have necessarily a big picture. They have jobs to do. They know how to do those jobs. And they do the things that they need to do. In their own area of expertise, they are a lot smarter and more efficient than probably most anybody else. But that's true here with us, too. You know, if you are, uh, you know, whatever it is, whether you, uh, you know, fix power lines or uh, do brain surgery or play the piano, most people couldn't just step into your position and do that. You know more about what you're doing than, than others. And these workers tend to be like more like that. And in the third group, the group of the powerful being that kind of captures you, well, we don't see a whole lot of humans like that. Although, we have we see some occasionally that are close, but this is a this is a level of awareness that generally you don't find here uh, on this planet. But it's not that it's a different form of consciousness. It's just the same form of consciousness, just more highly developed. So all of these from the elemental right up to the to the uh, the, the being that can uh, kind of probe your mind, if you will, all of these are just the same sort of consciousness that we have. It's just less developed or more developed. It just has a smaller decision space or a greater decision space. Now, as you develop, your decision space goes up. So the more you're developed, the more you grow up, the more you get rid of the fear, the more decision space you have. So that, it kind of, those kind of work together. Okay, so that's, there's really no fundamental difference between human consciousness and these other kinds of consciousness. It's just that in the non-physical, you can span a greater, uh, what do we call it, a, a greater diversity because the rule set is much 
is much uh, weaker. You have a very lax rule set, therefore more diverse things can can fill, can evolve to fill that space because the rule set allows more things. It's a, it's a less constraining rule set. So that's why we have some at the elemental level that are kind of unlike anything quite here. You know, I mentioned a very, very severely retarded person, but even that's probably not a, a real good match. They're a little different than anything that's here. That's kind of on a lower end than we see here. And then on the other end, the, the being that uh, knows what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and kind of grabs your attention. And there's not a whole lot you can do to you know, keep them from doing that. You're kind of uh, at loss with that. And we get close to that here, but probably not very often either. So it's just consciousness at a more evolved and, and less evolved levels is all it is. But consciousness is consciousness, and all of this consciousness has the same um, purpose, and that is to grow up, to get rid of fear, and uh, to get rid of the ego and the beliefs. That's what all of it is supposed to be doing. Some of it is doing that more or less sufficiently than others. and. Uh, so that's that's kind of how that relates to us. We, it's just a wider a wider version of, of what we see here. We have just a narrower spectrum of consciousness within this virtual reality. Okay, we can go on to your second question then. Well, I think uh, we may be able to skip that because you answered it already. Okay. And uh, the same applies to the third question. Um, there is perhaps... Uh, if the fourth is there, um, is there any evidence if there are types of entities which never leave NPMR and never incarnate? If so, how could they reduce their entropy? Yeah, the answer to that is yes. There's lots of entities that have never incarnated to a um, tight rule set like, like we experience here in this, uh, in this physical matter reality. They always just stay in the looser rule set virtual realities. And they still can evolve, but it's a much slower path. They don't have the same degree of interaction and feedback that we have in this rule with this rule set. A tighter rule set means you have uh, more consistent and and more uh, how do we say uh, you know we have interactions that are unavoidable. It's our rule set forces things to be uh, much the way they are. Whereas when you are just trading information in a, in a uh, virtual reality that has a very loose rule set, it's not, uh, you know, you don't have as much traction on feedback on how, what, on how you're interacting to what you're getting or how somebody else is interacting with what you're giving them. So without that kind of feedback, you don't get as much learning per time spent at the game. But they do evolve, and it's not that that's a no evolution space. It's just a slow evolution space. As a matter of fact, a lot of the, of the entities that I would put into the, the negative side of evolution, a lot of them fit that description. They are uh, in... Um, They only they have only existed in all of their experience within very loose rule set virtual realities. Um, 
I'm not sure exactly why that is, but just thinking back of all the entities that kind of fall into that category, there's a fair number of them that would uh, be those who have kind of evolved to the negative side, if you will, or de-evolved to, uh, to the negative side. Okay. Yes, thank you. It was very interesting. You're welcome. Yeah, I think maybe the reason that, the, that there's more that are to the negative side there is that when you're to the positive side, you're looking for ways to evolve yourself, to grow, to have choices, to uh, you know make um, reduce your entropy. You're actively trying to grow up. If you're to the negative side, not so much. You're not really. Uh, that's not really of an interest to you. It's you just uh, kind of interact within the small realm of your interaction, and that seems to be enough. You don't have a lot of drive to go forward because actually forward is in the opposite direction of where you've gone you know so and for a negative entity going forward seems to them to be going backwards uh, they have to uh, go the other way so i think that's probably why in the of the the beings that never incarnate into a, a tight rule set kind of virtual reality i think they just have less incentive May I perhaps uh, ask you a fifth one because we skipped number two and three? <laughs> yes, go ahead. <laughs> that would be, uh, what is the ultimate um, disposition of those uh, entities who evolved and reduced their entropy finally? Because then there is no need anymore for them to incarnate. What are they doing uh, all the time after that? Okay. Uh, well, it's not that you get to a point where there is no longer is a need to incarnate because it's not just about you. You see, lowering your entropy is about becoming love. Becoming love is about other. So as you grow up and become love, as you, as you uh, evolve to a higher quality consciousness, you're more and more concerned with other, not just your own evolution, but the evolution of everybody, the evolution of the system. And then there's plenty of reason to come back into a place like uh, our PMR because there's a lot of help that you can offer. There's a lot of uh, you know, teaching. There's a lot of good example. There's, there's a lot of benefit that you can bring to the whole. So when you get to the point that it's not so much about your own choices and your own evolution, then it becomes about others and their evolution and how can you be helpful. Now, the other point to this is that if you don't entire, if you don't always work toward lowering entropy, entropy just increases all by itself. It's just the nature of existence. If you don't work at it, if you don't continually put effort into growing into lowering entropy, your entropy will start to increase. So without an effort to continue to evolve, you automatically start to de-evolve. It's just the nature of, of um, what do you say, of lower entropy. Everything takes maintenance. You know, if you don't ever do any maintenance on your house, ever, it will start to fall apart and decay and that decay rate will get faster and faster. The only way you can keep that home uh, working and keeping the rain off and the, and the cold out uh, in the, in the uh, winter time is to keep putting 
effort into it. Everything requires constant maintenance, constant effort. And so it is with growing up. So if you get to the point where you think you're done and you just feel like, uh, you know, you don't need to incarnate anymore. You don't really need to be helping people. You're just done. Well, that's when you begin to de-evolve. That's when you're thinking just about yourself, not about what you can give, but uh, the fact that you're done and uh, you don't have anything else to do. At that point, you would start uh, de-evolving. So I don't think there's an end. I don't believe there's an end point in it. I think there's always something else to do. You can always come back and be helpful. And by the time you get to the point where you don't need to be here anymore, you're certainly to the point that you care a whole lot more about being useful and helpful and what can I give than you care about what can I get and what do I need. So uh, I don't see an end in sight. This uh, system itself, the larger consciousness system is constantly evolving itself. It's not like it's a, you know, there's an endpoint. The system is still in flux and evolving. And we are part of that evolution in our flux. So, yes, we have a what we call maybe an executive um, component of this larger consciousness system. And it's that executive component of it that does the, uh, um, you know, that's created this virtual reality, say, or that is, is uh, the rule maker and the rule enforcer, you know, is part of that executive set. But that's just another piece of the same thing we're a piece of. And it's not perfect either. And there's always new consciousness uh, being, you know, put in at the bottom level. So it's, the whole thing continues to expand and continues to grow and evolve. So I would, you know, my own feeling is that there isn't an end point. You don't get done and then, uh, you know, do nothing afterwards. With no effort to, to lower your entropy, your entropy just increases naturally all by itself. I guess that's the second law of thermodynamics. It works that way in all the reality frames. It, you don't keep putting energy in, things start to decay. Even if you get a brand new battery, if 10 or 20 years go by, nobody's ever used that battery. Well, it's no good anymore. It's just dead and can't be charged. It's just used up, even though nobody ever used it, because everything dissipates in time. Even a, even a, you know, a block of steel, if you wait long enough, will just evaporate, because there's always little pieces of it flying away. You know, atom by atom, molecule by molecule, things eventually just out of the vibration uh, state that they're in, some of them will get launched and escape, and you know, eventually the whole everything will dissipate. That's why uh, they say that our universe one day will be nothing but you know, a hydrogen gas and elementary particles, and that's all that will be left. Everything decays in time, and it's the same in consciousness because structure doesn't hold itself together. Structure without maintenance, structure without uh, intent focused on maintaining that structure, the structure begins to fall apart. You know, if you can think of it in mind space, things are structured because an intent structures them. An active intent structures them. That active intent goes away, then the, the force, if you will, that maintains the structure starts to go away with it, starts to erode with it. So it requires an active intent and focus in order to maintain a, a low quality of consciousness. 
So all those beings that um, uh, kind of get to the point they don't need to incarnate back here again are the ones who most certainly do want to incarnate back here or some other place again so that they can be helpful. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Torsten. Uh, I hope that was a, a good answer to your question. It was. Cool. Yeah. Okay, Tom, we're going to move on to a great question from a forum member. Um, it's a question about the interface or an interface analogy to communicate with other. The forum member writes as follows. Tom has explained how it's not possible for us to know what's outside the larger consciousness system, the LCS, using the analogy of the stomach bacteria not being able to know what's outside of the human body. And then they were thinking of a desktop computer as a model of our virtual reality system, and it occurred to them that what is the equivalent of a webcam, or what if the equivalent of a webcam or some other input-output device existed in our reality system? Would this not provide the means for a two-way communication with other. Perhaps such a thing doesn't exist, or if it does, perhaps consciousness would have to do, evolve further before it could discover and learn to interface with this device. An analogy would be something like having to develop the computer code before the operating system can interface with the webcam. Could you please comment on this? Okay. Um, the idea of a webcam is the idea that you get to look someplace else other than where you are and communicate with whoever's there okay that's kind of the idea and this question has that process happening between pmr and npmr so there's some sort of communication conduit set up that the pmr folks can talk to the npr folks well there already is such a thing we don't need a technology that does that that's what you do with your consciousness those npmr folks are consciousness just like you and your consciousness just like them you just happen to be getting a data stream and uh, they're not in that data stream. They're not partaking of that same data stream. But you don't need a webcam to uh, connect with them. That's, um, you know, everybody has the ability to develop themselves to the point that they can make that connection. So we don't need a technology to do that. Um, you know, the, the consciousness itself is the technology that serves that purpose. You're not going to make a physical a physical interface a physical web a webcam that seems physical to us and then have that interact in the non-physical and you're not going to make a non-physical device and have that interact in the physical so those those two things see there really isn't physical and non-physical there's you're in the data stream you're out of the data stream that's really the way the physical and non-physical works if you're in the data stream, that means you're, you're, you're getting a data stream from the server that's serving up this virtual reality we call physical universe, then you feel like your experiences here are physical, but you're really a piece of consciousness in an MPR. You're not consciousness inside the physical universe. You're only playing a character, an avatar that's inside the physical universe. So you don't need a, a, a some sort of a device to connect us with an NPR. That's already where we exist. That's our home to begin with as consciousness. So those entities that are not in the data stream that defines them as a part of our physical universe, well, they're just not playing our game. But from inside our game, we're not going to be able to make a physical device that then 
You see, inside our physical game, our avatar is not going to make a physical device that lets him talk directly to what's outside the game. That's like the elf making some kind of a device inside of World of Warcraft that he can talk to you that doesn't go through the computer. You see, that doesn't make any sense because the elf is created by the computer itself. You see, everything's created by the computer. So you wouldn't have the elf devising something that could somehow short circuit the computer and talk to you directly. It just doesn't compute. That's not the way the game is put together. So there won't be any device like that, but you can always create that link just by learning to uh, let go of the data stream here and connect to other data streams. So that's really the way you, you solve that problem. All right. Thank you very much for that, Tom. Listen, I have a question here from Jesse. It's a very short question. I don't even know if I actually have enough for you to go by. But uh, what they ask is, I would like to ask Tom a question about bending reality. And that's it. I'm afraid so. That's all I have. <laughs> I don't know if, okay. if, if that makes any sense to you. If not, I do have another question for them, which is much easier for you to answer, I hope. Yeah. So if, if you don't think we can do that one, I can ask them well, another we, question. We can maybe see what we can do with it. Okay. Uh, I, I appreciate Jesse. Uh, Jesse makes these really short one line, you know, 15 word or less questions that uh, generally are really uh, easy to understand. This one's a little more challenging. It's even shorter than that. Uh, bending reality. I think what people mean by that is really bending the rules. You know, they want to know can you know can we bend the rules in this reality? Can we do things that are outside of the the rule set? And the answer is yes, we can do things that are outside of of the uh, normal rule set. Now, they cannot create something in this reality that is in conflict with the rest of the reality. It's like, what I'm saying is, you're not gonna bend the rule set by having a little part of Antarctica, you know, in the, you know, on the equator. You see, that's just not gonna work, okay? That isn't, that isn't gonna happen. But you can do things like remote view and get information that the rule set doesn't, you know, doesn't really allow you to have inside this rule set. But you can do that. That's kind of bending the rules. And you can do things um, like that. Let's see if you, uh, you know, if you, my example I give sometimes, you can, you know, levitate a box of rocks. But if you levitate that box of rocks, you'll probably only do that when you're alone or with maybe a couple of other people around. And if you make videos of it and show them around, everybody will think that you've made up the video and the whole thing's a, you know, the whole thing is a, is a lie because nobody will believe you. And if you tell people that what you can do and then try to demonstrate it in front of lots of people with cameras, then it probably won't work. So you see the system is, is set up to keep blatant inconsistencies on a large scale from happening. You can't produce a conflict like that in the system, but in your own way, in your own mind and in your own experience, or that of a few others, you indeed can do things that aren't necessarily uh, physical things to do, you know, things that the, that the rule set defines as this physical reality. And the way you do that is you're actually doing these things from the non-physical. You're, you're non-physically getting into the databases 
that have the information in it for you to remote view or you're non-physically using your intent to modify future probability which allows you to heal so these are things that seem like they're they are breaking the the rule set they're not really breaking the rule set they're going around the rule set i suspect they're using your connection uh to the non-physical because you are consciousness you exist in the non-physical you're using that intent to modify things here but even so you're not going to modify things in a big way that creates a discontinuity in our reality so yes you can heal someone as long as there's some uncertainty associated with that healing you see that's why healing is an easy thing to do because there's so much uncertainty around you know the state of somebody's health um you know there are people who have been stage four cancer going to die in six weeks who you know six weeks later are out playing volleyball with their kids because it just went away doesn't happen often but it happens you see and because those kinds of things happen there's lots of room for uncertainty for all sorts of things to take place in the in the realm of health which makes using your intent to modify future probability particularly easy because there's lots of uncertainty so that's generally what uh, limits the amount that you can bend the rules bend the rule set or bend the reality is how much uncertainty is there about what it is you are doing okay now if you if you levitate that box of rocks in your living room one night now to you there's no uncertainty in that at all because you were there and you saw it and maybe two or three other people were there and they all saw it but there's tremendous amount of uncertainty rest of the population when you tell people about it and they think you're making it up you see so because of that uncertainty even though you're not not uncertain with that much uncertainty around then it doesn't matter you can get away with that okay so the key here is uncertainty and that's what i call the science uncertainty principle as, as much as there is uncertainty that's how much you can tend to to bend reality into ways that uh, you would like it to, to go or kind of break the rule set or another way of saying it is is working through the non-physical to affect the physical you're kind of getting around the rule set you're not really breaking the rule set the rule set's still there you're just uh, manipulating things kind of around the rule set from the from the non-physical. So I hope that answers your question, Jesse. I took a shot at it anyway. <laughs> um, I think you did really well, Tom, for what was a very short uh, question. You know, um, Jesse did have another very short and easy to read question, and that's as follows. If Earth really is a kindergarten, then why are you here, Tom? You seem to be more like a grade two or grade three student. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm in the second or third grade. At least. Well, I, don't, I don't know. I think I belong here in kindergarten, uh, along with all the rest of the children. Uh, like I uh, uh, answered the first question, there's always something to do here. You know, there's always there's always some somebody to help be part of the prog part of the process of of uh, helping others. To, uh, increase their quality that's really the point that you get to after your own quality level gets high enough that you're really useful to other people you know in a, in a direct way in the very beginning uh, or even pretty much in the middle you're pretty well focused on your own growth your own uh, 
you know, uh, fears. Because if you have a whole lot of fear, it's really hard to be a real good example for others. It's really hard to be really helpful to others because all that fear just gets in the way. So you're pretty much working on yourself then, getting rid of that fear. When you get rid of a lot of that fear, and let's say you've gotten rid of is just enough that uh, it would be true to say that you have significantly less fear than the average person, okay? which still might mean you have an awful lot of fear, but significantly less than the average person. Well, at that point, you should start being useful to other people because it's not only that you can help yourself reduce your fear more, but you actually now can be a good example and can be helpful to other people because you have less fear than they do. So all along, it's not like you're, it's all about you until you get to the point you don't need to incarnate here anymore, then suddenly it's about other people. If you grow up a little bit, then that's a little bit you have to share with others to be helpful. When you grow up a little bit more, then the concept of that sharing will change to rather than telling people about what they need to do, you know, giving people examples and, uh, you know, letting, helping people figure it out for themselves and that sort of thing. So it's all part of the growing process. So it's not true that that uh, the only people in kindergarten are the people that have to be there. In any kindergarten, there's always some teachers because if you have just a whole bunch of kindergartners in the in the room all by themselves and uh, no teachers, it uh, is not a very effective uh, learning space. You see, so that uh, you need a lot of teachers. I think kindergartens there's a there's a rule of you need uh, one adult for every four uh, preschoolers. I think that's the idea because preschoolers take almost constant observation so that they don't hurt themselves or somebody else because there's no telling what they might do or get into. So it's not quite that bad here, but uh, still, the more teachers you have, then uh, the better the learning situation. Right. Well, that certainly makes sense, Tom, um, and that's a good answer. Um, moving on to another forum question. Um, I have a two-part question from a member of the forum about the energy practice known as Kundalini. Um, he writes as follows. Uh, a long time ago, you had a conversation here with Casey about Kundalini. You said the following to Casey. I agree the population is being primed for change. When this person had their Kundalini thing, uh, they sought out others who were having it, and they found many that were having a similar experience. So there must be many other folks having that particular upgrade. Uh, would I be able to find someone online? Um, if I, if sorry, if, if I was able to find someone online, which wasn't that hard. Um, so they wonder whether you could update the discussion of the idea of a change to the population, and whether some sort of Kundalini surge may be a part of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I okay. got that. Uh, well, what I told Casey. Uh, and I've described to others as Kundalini is sort of a, an interface upgrade. We have an interface with the larger consciousness system. And as you grow up to a point that your, your physical system, okay, that's your avatar, uh, doesn't, isn't quite as efficient, let's say, as connecting to the larger conscious system as it uh, as it could be, there are, this Kundalini uh, thing basically is a is an upgrade to that interface. Okay, it is a change that takes place in the uh, non-physical, okay, in the in the consciousness realm, and 
it may or may not actually have an analog in the physical realm, but it certainly feels that way when you undergo it. That it's uh, it's for those of you that have undergone it, it's kind of a um, well, liquid fire is a good is a good uh, a metaphor, I guess, that kind of courses through your body, and it seems to have its own path. It knows its own way, knows what it wants to do, and usually you're not all that successful at, at manipulating it. It manipulates you is usually the way it works out and it takes its path and when it's done you feel more open you feel more in touch more connected with the larger thing you have a, a little bigger picture all right but that can fade as well you know it's it's like you get a little plus up there and that can be kind of done to you if you will or it can be just the fact that you earned it you know you're at that point where you're ready to connect more um, openly and uh, less tentatively, so this this uh, Kundalini experience happens to you. Okay, interface upgrade would be the way to say it. It's something you earn by being ready for it. So if you're not ready for it, trying to force it to happen, there's some possibility to try to force that sort of thing to happen with your intent if you focus your intent on almost anything you will raise the probability of it happening because that's what intent does so if you take a lot of intensive uh, uh, focusing you can push this kundalini experience ahead of its time and if you do that it's generally not a good idea because now you have a tool that you're really not ready to use yet and sometimes that's not a problem and sometimes that turns out to be a big problem okay it's like uh, you know you don't give a kindergarten preschooler you know uh, you know a knife and tell them to go play and be careful you know that's just not an intelligent thing to do you don't do that but if they somehow get hold of one and you're not able to take it away from them better watch out because they just may create some trouble they just may go cut up all the toys in the toy box you know or, something else because they're not really mature enough to deal with that so tools require a certain amount of, of growth to be able to handle them. same with driving a car you wouldn't want to put a toddler behind the wheel of a car uh, even if they could reach the pedals you know or whatever it'd be a wrong thing to do they don't have the judgment for that so it's not a good thing to push ahead of its time and when it's ready it'll happen it's one of those things. So it's not like you have to worry about it. Oh, no, I, they must have overlooked me. I've been ready for a long time, and I've never had that experience. You know, that's the way everybody will feel because everybody thinks they're ready, of course. So it happens when you are ready, and no, nobody gets overlooked or whatever. It just is, is available. And some people, uh, just by luck and circumstance, get there, uh, you know, get there maybe before they're ready. Some people push it push the process with their intent, get there before they're ready, but it's not a good idea. So why is this happening? Well, I think it's happening because we have, and if you look at my, uh, let's see, where was I? In, uh, wasn't Portland, where were we in? Washington, I guess, um, Spokane. In Spokane, Washington, uh, I gave a little talk and I, I talked about this subject a little bit. And that is we have for the first time in the history of our species have the tools that we need to really push our evolution forward in consciousness. 
to a degree that's never been done before. So we're at this point where now we have the room to grow. We have the tools. We've we've reached the point where we could uh, perhaps go, you know, get to the tipping point, and then things would speed up a whole lot. And just because we are at this this place, this uh, this ability to progress a great deal, and that has to do with things like the internet. It has to do with uh, um, the fact that we can interact together and change things. We can, you know, we can share. People can have their minds changed or their their growth uh, facilitated all over the planet because now we have communications all over the planet. So the ability to affect large numbers of people, both for good or for bad, you know, it's there. It's never been there before. You might have what I call bubbles of enlightenment pop up in a certain place. And some of them popped up, you know, on our uh, planet, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, you know, but they're isolated. It just kind of worked in an area and they did what they did and maybe they spread, maybe they uh, didn't, but they're just more isolated. We're not isolated anymore. Those things can, can work together now where they couldn't before. Not only that, we as a species have grown, believe it or not, a lot kinder and gentler over the last several hundred years. And I know you look around and read the news and you think that's kind and gentle. You know, it looks like a pretty rough jungle out there. You know, the greed and, and uh, fear, you know, that's in the land. But yes, if you, if you just go back a couple of hundred years, we've made a lot of progress. Okay? So things like this, the progress tends to accelerate. The more progress you make, the easier it is to make more progress. That sort of thing. So now we have the tools, we have the situation, we've got the launching platform. Finally, uh, first time in what, uh, I don't know how long humans have been around on the earth, but uh, probably, uh, you know, several million years anyway, you know, maybe two, three, four million years. In all that time, this is our first really good opportunity to, as a species, grow up significantly. And because of that, there's been more than usual, um, what do you say, prodding from the non-physical to try to get us a little ready to take advantage of this opportunity to help us uh, uh, make as much out of it as possible. So that's probably the reason why these Kundalini experiences are a lot more common now than they were before. There's an awful lot of people now who just have this interest in growing up and becoming and, and finding a way to make this a more kinder, gentler, peaceful environment. You know, people are really sick and tired of all the greed and all of the, you know, the warring and all of the, it's all about me sort of thing. And that has been coming to a head as well. Now, that doesn't mean within the next couple of weeks or next couple of years, you know, something major is going to happen. You're thinking we got to think now in terms of, of uh, you know evolutionary time. It's sort of like geological time. You know, things take a long time to happen, but we can see the kind of a quickening now in the interest in spirituality and bigger pictures and not being uh, trapped by the uh, status quo, thinking out of the box. All of this is popping up a whole lot more 
now than it had before. And that's partly because it's being prodded. On the other side of that, you also have the negative entities who see maybe a, a last a last shot effort to try to make the whole thing, you know, go to hell in the handbasket and, and go backwards instead of forwards. So we also find ourselves kind of on the knife edge that, uh, you know, it could be pushed one way or another. So we have a time of great uh, opportunity and uh, possibly great calamity, but, uh, but I focus on the great opportunity. And uh, that's why, you know, that's the times we live in. You know, they're very exciting times. But, uh, and this, again, I'm not talking about this year or this week. I'm talking about, you know, plus or minus probably 50 years or maybe 100 years. You know, who knows? It's not necessarily a quick thing I'm talking about. So it's, it's not tomorrow. But this, this groundswell in both spirituality and in negativity are not entirely by accident. It's starting to, you know, it's starting to come up to the point where um, there will, um, you know, we will tip one way or the other. And the possibility to tip to the positive side is getting stronger and stronger too. The negative side is actually more like last ditch desperation. So I think the, the momentum here is on the positive side. That's the way it looks at the present time. But, you know, like they say, the game isn't over till the fat lady sings, right? In this case, it's, it's not over until, uh, you know, that tipping point has been achieved and it, and it uh, you know, goes one way or another. But actually, it's never really over because no matter what happens, whether we backslide tremendously, well, we're still just going to chug on trying to climb back up that hill again. You know? So it just goes on and on and on. We've done that sort of thing before, no doubt. So, you know, it's not a, it's not something to uh, worry too much about it other than just do your part, you know, try to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And that's kind of the biggest thing. If everybody just tries to make sure they're part of the solution and not part of the problem, then uh, that's all it'll take to uh, go to the positive to the positive sides of things. But yes, these are exciting times and uh, there is a little more um, interest in the kind of things that we're talking about uh, than there would have been say uh, 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And there's been these little resurgences of that. Uh, they kind of come and go. And each time it just helps the, the culture, helps the species to get a little bigger view. But if the species isn't quite ready, well, then it subsides and goes on. You know, back in the, what, um, 1800s, there was kind of a resurgence of interest in, in uh, uh, spiritual things. You know, what was it, the group called uh, Theosophy? You know, they uh, kind of got a start back, back in then. It grew, got fairly popular. Uh, there's been resurgence and then shrinking in our culture off and on forever. And each time we have one of those little bubbles that expands the, the concepts and spirituality, it gives us a little nudge in a forward direction. And uh, that's the way evolution works, little bits at a time. So now we're giving a, we kind of getting another one of those, uh, those little uh, plus ups, if you will, to, uh, to push a little harder at this time, because finally we've got all the pieces together to actually do it. And uh, the negative side would like it all to sink back into chaos. So here we are.
we've got energy being pushed into both sides of that equation. And, and we're the ones that have to make the choices that sees which way it goes. That's us. All the people that are here that are going to be here for the next 50 years or so, uh, however uh, long this takes to come to a head, you know, maybe it'll be 200 years. You know, I don't know. It's a, you got to think in very long terms. It's hard to say what's, what's uh, going to happen. But it's not a done deal. And if you look at the probabilities, it's not overwhelming to either side. So it's still, uh, it, you know, the jump ball still in the air. It hasn't, uh, you know, been pushed one way or another yet. So we live in very interesting times. And the most important thing that you can do is make yourself part of the solution. Help share, help, help spread the ideas, you know, uh, that sort of thing. So yes, this Kundalini is happening to more people, more spontaneous events like that happening. It used to be it happened when you were with a guru and a guru kind of raised you up through the evolutionary, you know, chain, you know, one step at a time over 20 years or 30 years. And then you got to the point where, you know, Kundalini was brought up and it was that kind of a process, but that's uh, now it's happening a little quicker with uh, a lot less hands-on effort for, for um, many people. Right. Thank you very much for that, Tom. I think some of the things you've just mentioned there will probably answer some of the questions that uh, the second part of the question that the same forum member had um, they also relate to personal experience and I'd like to read that out to you um, they say really? I, sorry I have an ongoing sort of relationship with the Kundalini energy or event it feels to be very much in the Shakti mode and it keeps coming back I regularly have that feeling of liquid electricity up my spine when I meditate and sometimes it sort of takes me over and a couple of times I've been sort of pulled out of my body once at a yoga class, I was pulled out of the top of my head and sort of smeared out all over the ceiling in the room. I wasn't located at a single point anymore, but more sort of a puddle in the air. My teacher, a wonderful Sikh woman, had to help me get back into my body. This also happened when I had my gateway Voyager experience last summer. Now, I was supposed to go to Focus 21, I think it was, the bridge. But got there, I somehow got yanked up to Focus 27. I think... It felt like a park, at least, and when I was there, I sort of forgot how to get back. Now, if Bob hadn't called me back through the headphones, I would not even thought to have returned. I would have stayed there because I didn't know any better. When I was reminded to come home, I had to struggle to remember how to do it, and I ended up stretched out between somewhere between sorry, F27 and F21. I could feel myself actually existing as a long line stretched across a blank void. It was a lot of work to get down to the bridge. I had to really focus hard on my feet and on the feeling of the stone bridge underneath my feet and even the sound of my feet as they scritched on the stone. So anyway, the way you describe Kundalini as a relatively brief upgraded process, it seems that I seem to be having an extended version of that. Would this indicate to you then a misunderstanding on my part? I know you can't really know my particular issues, but it does not feel like a problem. I really enjoy the relationship. So is this a religious trap kind of thing? I don't know what he meant by religious trap, but uh, in any case, uh, no. I think we well, got a couple of comments there. One is the spontaneous things that are happening to him are, you know, it's like when you go get a shot to keep you from getting tetanus, but then you have to go back and get a booster shot. 
And then, you know, seven years after that, you got to go back and get a booster shot. It's sort of like that. He had this experience and he, he remembers that experience and he kind of brings that experience back, if you will, and relives it, puts him back into that space for a while. But it's not that his Kundalini is, you know, that he's going through the same Kundalini experience again. He's basically reliving the experience he had the first time. He's refeeling it. So it feels like it's the same thing happening to him again. And it's kind of like the booster shot. It's, it's like a reminder to, you know, do something with this, to grow up, to take the, take the initiative and uh, get rid of that fear. So it's that sort of thing. Now, the things that he seemed to have trouble with, he got was a puddle on the ceiling and, you know, thank goodness somebody got him back and he almost you know, didn't, didn't know the way back. Well, all of that is his own lack of focus and his, his own fear. It's the way he interpreted the, the situation. Now, when I say fear, it doesn't mean that he was feeling frightened. It just means that there was there was part of him that was not not connected, didn't actually have the sense of what to do, so just kind of hung out there. That happens to a lot of people in point consciousness. They get into point consciousness and they just float there because it's pleasant and it's nice and they're there and they're basically one with uh, everything. They're connected to everything and they really see no reason that that ought to stop. You know, it's just there and uh, they feel very, very good with that. You know, that's Nirvana and it's a very pleasurable, nice place. So they just kind of hang out there. But it's not true that he couldn't have come back if that person hadn't helped him or if Bob hadn't called him back. He would have come back regardless. He would have eventually uh, found himself wide awake back in the old avatar and everything would have been normal. But at the time, his own sense of it, his own awareness of what to do next was just out there floating. It wasn't really engaged. Well, that's not a problem. It's not like he just would have floated on off into someplace else and his body would have, you know, shriveled and turned to dust. And, you know, one of those things that you see on a Hollywood movie, you know, it's not it's not like that. He would have ended up back here just no matter what in, in any of those situations. But um, the fact that, that he got called back by Bob, because Bob's voice is on the tape. That's what he meant. The tape has Bob's voice on it, and it says, all right, it's time to come home now. You know? and the reason he says that is because almost everybody's out there floating on a tether, not really paying attention to who, you know, where, who they are, what they are. And if he doesn't say that, you know, then uh, when the lights go on and the sound stops, you know, they'll be totally, um, what's the word? Uh, um, you know, they'll be, they'll be out of focus for a while. They'll be uh, discombobulated. They'll be uh, partly here and partly there, and it'll take them a while to get themselves together again. And it's just a kind of a little uncomfortable if you uh, have to suddenly go from one state to another. So Bob calls everybody back. So over a nice, smooth, kind of graceful descent back into this reality frame, then it just makes all that easier. You don't have uh, the sense of being disjointed in your, in your perception and in your reality. So he would have come back anyway, and it probably would have just come back gently. 
the, the very highest probability, if there was nobody to call him back or to help him in any, any case, he would have woken up, you know, half an hour later, you know, his eyes would go open and it's like, oh, where am I? Oh, yeah, right. I'm lying here in this bed with headphones on. Oh, I wonder where everybody else is doing. Did I miss lunch? You know, it would be that sort of thing. He would have come back on his own or in the, in the yoga class when other people got up to stir around and stood up and he was still sitting there in the position. He would have started to come back and get uneasy and eventually he would have just woke up there too. It wasn't that. Uh, but now when somebody goes to, to get you back, then you kind of play with that too. That becomes a part of your process. So you engage with that person, like with Bob or with this lady, the Sikh lady who helped him come back. You engage in that process. And then you tend to believe that you wouldn't have made it without that process, but that's not really the case. So I say that because I don't want what he said to scare a lot of people about, oh, you get out there and you can't get back. You know, what a scary thing because fear is not part of the solution. So I want people to know that that's not really a problem. It just seems like a problem. And the more it seems like a problem to you, then the worse the problem is. So you see, it didn't really seem that much like a problem to this person, to uh, Dave, I believe it is. He was okay with it. He was just up there on a puddle on the ceiling, and that was okay. Or he was just out there in some other focus and doing something else, and that was okay. So it's not that he got wrapped around the fear. The fear wasn't the problem. But as far as, a, as it being kind of a, a fear that is disturbing, but it was his sense of being unplugged. And uh, that uh, that caused him some concern. But no, Dave, it's not a problem. You're getting these uh, these little uh, reruns of this Kundalini experience as nudges to do something. We'll start working on that fear, that ego, uh, growing up, uh, uh, lowering your entropy, helping other people. Uh, it's not just an experience. It's not like getting on a roller coaster and say, wow, that was cool, you know, and then just going about your life. It's like, okay, you've got some insight now. You've got some connection. Now, how are you going to use that to grow up and to help other people grow up? What are you going to do with it? How are you going to share it? How are you going to be part of the solution? So you keep getting these nudges that are um, – Trying to get you back, you know, back into, uh, you know, working on the problem. Nothing unusual and nothing unnormal. It's not a trap of any sort. It's just the way it is. You should have a good relationship with that, with that experience and, uh, you know, keep on experiencing it. But look for ways to apply it to your life and to be helpful to others.